This morning, what I want us to do is I want us to begin, I want to begin by asking you a question, and this question is going to be what sort of hangs over the top of what we want to study together today, and, and I want you to just sort of roll it around in your mind uh, as we work our way through this passage. The question that I have for you is this, how would you describe to others what it means for you to live your best life? You know, I see that, that, that phrase a lot of times. I see it on social media posts. People say, I'm living my best life. And oftentimes when they say that or when they make that statement, it's accompanied by pictures. And oftentimes those pictures are with them on vacation somewhere. They're out at the beach. They're, they're on a lake somewhere by the pool, some other exotic location. And they always say, I'm living my best life. And, and so as we ask ourselves the question, what... How would I describe for you what it means for me to live my best life? The question that I want you to think is, what am I going to be doing? Where am I going to be? What are the circumstances that surround me living my best life? You might be interested in knowing this. Um, there's, there's the hashtag, live your best life. And, and that hashtag would, uh, uh, in, on Instagram has posted over 5 million, people have posted over 5 million different things that go with living their best life. I, I typed that into the Google search. That's, I don't have Instagram. I don't even know how that works, but I do know Google. And so I typed into Google, live your best life, and would you believe that there were nearly 9 billion hits on that phrase? Most of them all included results in, by articles or books or social media accounts, websites that are devoted to helping folks like you and I learn how to live our best life. I didn't investigate all nine billion, I promise you, but um, I, did, I did look up a couple of them, and, and one of the ones that I read had this, uh, had this advice. It says, to live your best life is to describe a lifestyle that makes you happy. Be that a lifestyle of, of traveling, working on your dream house, or, or enjoying your dream job. And the website went on to say this, your best life is about you. In fact, the most important word in that phrase, this website said, is the word your, because it's your life that we're talking about. And that's why they said, regardless of how many posts you find on social media, it only matters how you define and how you live your best life. And all of that is totally and entirely up to you. Now, that all sounded really good. I couldn't help but wonder, though, is it really true? Is living my best life really all about me? You know, based upon a cursory glance of many of the websites that are devoted to helping me pursue my best life, the predominant view of the world would say, yes, it is. I would suggest, however, though, there's a greater source to which we ought to turn. If we're going to investigate what it means to live our best life, I would suggest that we turn to God's holy word, which speaks to us about that very subject. And in fact, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me once again to the book of Acts and to chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we're going to continue our expositional study through this book, and today we come to an extended narrative section that I believe will help us approach the answer to that question from a biblical perspective about what it means for a believer 
When we say to someone that we're living our best life, how should we respond? What, what should be the characteristics of a believer who is living his or her best life? And based upon this passage, I would suggest to you that, that how the Bible answers that question is far, far different from the way that the world would tell us that we ought to answer it. I want to begin picking up there in verse 12. That's where we left off last week. And I'm going to read all the way down through the end of the chapter. And I want you to follow along with me as I read God's word to you this morning. The Bible says this, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. And also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then... The high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. And they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those who came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. I bet they did. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people that, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered and, hang, and hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theudas, who rose up claiming to be somebody, a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered. And came to nothing. After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. 
But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be, even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your wonderful, wonderful word. Thank you for how it stops us in our tracks, how it confronts us at every turn, how it arrests us and forces us to come to grips with what is true. So, Father, I pray that today as we study your word, that that, that would be reality for us in this room. Thank you for the place that you've given us to gather together as the people. Thank you for why you've blessed Ivy Creek Baptist Church, blessed us with folks joining our church, blessed us with such a beautiful, beautiful day to, to worship together. Now I pray that you bless us by your word and let your Holy Spirit Speak to each one of us and help us to push out all other distractions so that we may hear from you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I provided for you uh, an outline today that's got five points on it. Uh, you know by now that most of the time those things are alliterated and those alliterations are just basically for me. They, they are helpful for me to help me understand the text and I just kind of pass it along to you. They may, you may not find them that helpful, but I hope that you do. They're just hooks. There are things that I draw out from the text that allow us to hang our thoughts on some things. They're like mile markers that we just march through as we work through the passage that are pointing us to the main destination. And the main destination that I want us to get to together today is simply for us as believers who come together under the Word of God and under the presence of the Holy Spirit, how should we seek to answer the question, how am I supposed to tell other people what living my best life looks like? And the first hook that I provided for you simply is this. Based upon what we see in this passage, we recognize that the apostles were experiencing respect and authority. That's the first point that you see there, respect and authority. Consider things from the perspective of the apostles that that is precisely what they were experiencing according to verses 12 through 16. Remember what we read last week, that following the sudden death of Ananias and Sapphira because they uh, because they had uh, lied to the Holy Spirit and God had judged them, we read that great fear came upon the church. We read about that in verse 5 and verse 11 of this chapter. But then we, we, we understand that some time has passed, and we don't know exactly how long because Luke doesn't tell us. But nevertheless, we learn that, uh, that, that in this period that followed the display of God's divine judgment, we see the church in Jerusalem then begin to flourish once more. Many miracles as well as signs and wonders were occurring as the apostles displayed the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, people were coming 
from cities outside of Jerusalem and they were bringing their sick and their diseased and, and, and their, those that were uh, possessed by demons and they were bringing them into the streets of Jerusalem and we get the distinct understanding that there were so many of them laying there that, that they just desired for, for Peter to pass by and maybe his shadow would pass across them. They were, they were lining the streets. I couldn't help but be reminded of the similarities to how Matthew describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, Matthew says this in verse 23. He says, Jesus went out about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. And then his fame went throughout Syria, and they brought to him all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him. Many of the same characteristics could be said of what Luke tells us were happening with the apostles here in Jerusalem. The apostles were doing great things, very similar to what Jesus had done. And, and the gospel was also being preached. Multitudes were coming to faith. I find it interesting back in, in Acts chapter 2 and in later in chapter 3 and following, we, we find that Luke has tried to give us numbers to tell us how many folks were coming to Christ. There was 3,000 the first day and 5,000 another time. He's give up on counting now. He can't even begin to tell you how many there were. There were so many of them. He just says in verse 14, believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Now, obviously, this was a marvelous time in the life and the ministry of the apostles. Luke tells us in verse 13 that they were, they were esteemed highly. In other words, they were greatly respected among the people. Not only that, but their, their authority over sickness and over demonic power is evident from what we see. So they, they were respected and they had authority. Now, all that sounds really good. And we might ask, well, is this, is this the description of what it means to live your best life? Is this, is this the place that Luke is drawing us to? I mean, it certainly sounds good, but before we decide that, we need to see how things end because the apostles moved from being respected and having authority to notice the next hook that I've given you there. They were resisted and arrested. That's your second point. They were resisted and arrested. Luke tells us in verses 17 and 18 that the high priests along with the Sadducees were filled with indignation. The ESV says they were filled with jealousy and they laid their hands on the apostles and they put them in the common prison. And what becomes obvious is that all of these folks flocking to the apostles there in Jerusalem, well, that did not go unnoticed by the religious authorities of the day, including the, the, set, the ruling sect of the Sadducees, and they weren't going to stand for that. They resisted the apostles because they were jealous of the apostles. That's not all. Remember what we learned a couple of weeks back, that in preaching the gospel of Christ, the apostles were preaching that Jesus had been crucified for the sins of his people, had been buried, but that God had raised him from the dead. And that now he was their crucified yet resurrected Messiah. But the Sadducees, that was the powerful religious group that did not believe in such things. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. But they did believe in power. And that is exactly what they had. Except now, these unlearned and these uneducated Galilean followers of Jesus were gaining a following there in Jerusalem. 
And as a result, the Sadducees became jealous and they became filled with anger, not only because of what they were preaching and teaching, but also because they felt threatened. They feared losing their power. And furthermore, they hated the relentless testimony of the apostles who kept telling them about their guilt. So they come upon the apostles they preached and taught in the temple and as they healed people of their diseases and delivered them from their demons and they arrested them. Just like Jesus, who also was unjustly arrested and tried and crucified, so too are his apostles arrested and imprisoned. They are resisted and arrested because these leaders were jealous of them. Now let me ask you, resisted and arrested. Those are not exactly two words that we might use to describe living our best life, are they? But notice that a funny thing happened to the apostles on their way to trial. And I say it's funny because remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels, which is exactly who Jesus sent to deliver them from prison. He sends an angel. He dispatches an angel to go to Jerusalem to release these apostles from prison. Now, I can only imagine that as this angel miraculously does it, we're not given any specific details as to how it occurred, but can't you imagine those, those apostles as they're walking out of that prison, they're thinking to themselves, now this is more like it. This is the way it ought to be. This is living your best life. Living your best life means that when you get in trouble, Jesus just all of a sudden responds and pulls you out of trouble. That when you find yourself incarcerated, that God sends an angel to rescue you. That when you get sick, God automatically just comes and heals you. That when your money runs out, he just magically just flows more into your account. This is what living your best life is like. No. Notice what the angel tells these apostles to do. First of all, notice what he didn't tell them to do. He releases them from prison. You know what he didn't say? Guys, you probably need to get out of Jerusalem. Things are getting tough here. Pressure's getting hot. Y'all need to go back up to Galilee, back into the northern part. Go back to your family and to your friends, back where stuff is safe. Go back up to fishing again. That's, this is probably a good time for that because if you stay here, it's going to get worse. And the worse and the worse and the worse that it gets, the more difficulty you're going to run up against. So why don't you get out while the getting's good? It's not what he tells them. In fact, he tells them, he says, go stand in the temple, verse 20, and speak to the people all the words of this life. In other words, go back to where they just arrested you. Go back to doing what they arrested you for. Proclaiming the words of this life. Now, I can't imagine that the the apostles, as they went back into that temple and began to preach, that they would preach anything less than the name of Jesus. The words of this life, well, could they be anything other than Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me? They're there in the temple doing exactly what it was that had gotten them arrested. Now, let me just pause for a moment and point out that while we still, I don't think, have a full-orbed explanation of what living your best life looks like yet, according to this passage, we nevertheless can be assured of two things. We can be assured that it will involve obedience, 
and that it will involve testifying to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Living your best life will never not have those ingredients involved. It will always require obedience from you to what the Holy Spirit leads you to do, and it will always require you to give testimony to the good news of the gospel. So that's what the apostles do. They go back to the temple and they preach. And in the meantime, while this is happening, unbeknownst to the Sanhedrin, they assemble themselves together and they're getting ready to lay the hammer down. They send, they get, they get themselves assembled and they say, go send and, and fetch us the prisoners. Only there were no prisoners to fetch. They're all gone. The, 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 the guards were still there in front, of the, in front of the locked doors and the doors were still locked with the chains on it, but there's no prisoners to be found. Now, wouldn't you have just loved to have been in that council when the messenger came back with that news? Can you just imagine the looks on their faces as they're shocked and amazed at what this man is saying to them? And they wondered what the outcome would be. I would suggest to you, rather than wondering what the outcome would be, they should have known what the outcome was going to be. And they should have thought to themselves, are we on the wrong side of this equation? I mean, how in the world did they get out from there? How, what in the world is happening over there? Should, should, maybe we ought to be helping these apostles as a rather as opposing them. But evidently, that was not the way they were thinking. Nevertheless, somebody showed up into that council all of a sudden and said, hey, the guys you're looking for, well, they're standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. And I can only begin to imagine the chaos and the embarrassment that would have flooded into that room. So the captain of the guard, along with the others, they went and arrested the apostles for a second time, and they do so, you'll notice, without violence. They feared the people. You see, even though they were resisting, and even though they were arresting these apostles, they recognized that among the people, they were still respected and they had authority. So they knew that they had to be careful. But they get them, and they rearrest them for a second time, and they bring them before the Sanhedrin. And notice that no one asked them the question that's foremost on my mind. If I had been there, the first question I did. How'd y'all get out? I won't know. I mean, because they ain't, that's not normal. I want to know how you got out of prison. Strikingly, that's not the question that they ask. In fact, the, the chief priest asked this instead. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Now, the first thing I would tell you is, is that you notice what he won't even say? He would not even say the name of Jesus. Didn't we tell you not to preach in this name? You can almost hear the venom. He's more concerned about them disobeying his directive than he is about how they got out released from prison and, and whose side they're on as opposed to whose side he's on. The blindness that's there. But then they go on and say this, Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. You continue to implicate us with his death. That leads me to the next hook that I want you to see. The third point on your outline this morning is this. We see responsibility and affirmation. The apostles declare their responsibility and affirmation, and specifically it's responsibility to God and affirmation of the gospel. That's what occurs here. They have a responsibility to God to affirm the gospel. Peter says this. He evidently, like he always did, spoke up for the whole group, and he says, we ought to or we must obey God rather than men. In other words, our allegiance, our responsibility is to God above all others. And here we come face to face with the issue of civil disobedience. 
We touched on this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to state it clearly once again. As believers, listen, we do not have the right to dismiss our governing authorities simply because we do not like their laws that they require us to live under. The biblical writers continue to stress this throughout the New Testament. We are to recognize as believers the authorities that God has placed over us. Therefore, we're to respect those who are authorities and live peaceably, submitting to them. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Very clear what Paul writes there. Peter himself writes very clearly about this issue in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. He says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors. And then he goes on to say, For this is the will of God. Tony Morita, he has written this, he says, what that means is that as believers, we are to obey things like speed limit, stop signs, wearing our seat belts, paying income taxes, adhering to building codes, renewing our fishing licenses. We do all of that out of reverence for Jesus, for we do not have two masters. We only have one. We ultimately are standing before God who is the one who allows these authorities to be in our lives. In other words, we are not free to rebel simply because we do not like a law or because we do not like our leaders. Nevertheless, there are times when a Christian cannot obey the state and should not. Those times are when the state forbids what God requires or when the state sanctions what God forbids. John Stott has written this. He says, If the authority concern misuses its God-given power to command what he forbids or forbid what he commands, then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God. And that is precisely what Peter declares. He says, We ought to, we must Obey God rather than men. Peter was clear about his responsibility to God. But then notice that having stated that, Peter didn't go on to defend himself. This was an opportunity for him to defend himself and defend his fellow apostles, but that's not what Peter did. Rather, he went on to preach the gospel. He affirmed yet again that which he had preached three other times, Listen to what, how Luke summarizes Peter's words there in verses 30 through 32 again. He says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. I would encourage you to take this summarized 
three verses of Peter's sermon there or his testimony before the Sanhedrin and go and compare it to that which he preached in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 and again in Acts chapter 4. We have four specific times that Peter stands and, and delivers a message and every single time he says basically the same thing. Here, it's been summarized down to just a few points, and many have called this as being what is the kerygma. The kerygma is a word that's used to describe the basic gospel facts. And these facts include Christ's death for sins, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and also his appearance to those in resurrected form who were his chosen witnesses. And as I mentioned, this is what Peter chooses to focus his attention on, not a defense of himself. Nor did he begin, notice, by telling these members of the Sanhedrin things that they needed to start doing, how they needed to live. He didn't start with the implications of the ethical and moral implications of the gospel. He started with the facts of the gospel. And he did that so that those who heard the truth would believe upon Jesus and repent of their sins. And I think Peter's example here is important for you and I to, to consider. James Boyce has written this. He says, we should remember that a person first comes to Jesus as Savior before he or she can take on the burden of his teachings. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that those two things don't go together. But listen, he says, unless a person first believes on Jesus as his Savior and thus has the new life of Christ within, that person cannot even begin to live the life that Christ commanded. Peter did not tell the Sadducees to do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Instead, he told them to repent of their sins and to come to Jesus Christ and be cleansed from them. Listen, when we declare that message, when we tell others the message of the good news and we call upon them to repent and to believe, we must not think that everyone will immediately do that. Some will. I had the wonderful privilege this week during vacation Bible school to sit with a couple of young girls who after having heard the gospel clearly explained to them and I was able to come and talk with them afterwards, they bowed their heads and they repented of their sins and they placed their faith in Jesus Christ, confessing him as their Lord. And I want you to know there's not a greater blessing that I ever experienced than to be called upon at that moment to engage in that. It is a true blessing from God every time it occurs, whether it's a young child or an adult or someone in between. But I want you to know it's not always like that. It doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes they reject. And in this moment, Luke tells us that following Peter's testimony, the Sadducees and the members of the Sanhedrin, they rejected that message that they were speaking to them. In fact, they were furious, Luke says, and they plotted to kill the apostles. But then we read about this man named Gamaliel. He was, a, he was a Pharisee. He's a little more conservative than the Sadducees of that religious sect. And he had quite a reputation, and he, he wielded a lot of influence. And he stood and addressed the Sanhedrin. And what he says leads me to the fourth hook that you'll find there on your outline. It's two words there that just kind of describe what Gamaliel involved himself in. And it's a realization and advice. Realization and advice. Gamaliel was considered to be a great rabbi, and he was one that undoubtedly was well-respected, and he'd lived a long time, and he'd seen a lot of things, and he stood up and basically looked at the Sanhedrin and said, guys, I've seen this kind of thing happen before. Matter of fact, let me point you to, to these couple of guys, Thutis and, and, and Judas of, of, of Galilee. Those guys rose up, 
And they had big followings that followed them. But listen, what they did when they were killed, their followers dispersed and we ain't heard another word out of them. Now, let me tell you, that is the example that we're expecting to take place here. Leave these guys alone. The realization is, the realization is that if it's of God, you're only going to be fighting God. You're not going to win. So my advice to you is leave them alone. It's a laissez-faire kind of approach. Let's just wait and see what happens and let God sort all this out. Many have praised Gamaliel, some even championing him as a hero of the early church. I'm not sure that I want to go that far. To be sure, his realization and his advice were beneficial. It saved the lives of the apostles here, and for that we can be grateful. But I want you to know Gamaliel should have gone farther than that. He should have went past just a laissez-faire, wait-and-see mentality. He should have said, but while we wait, let's investigate the message that they continue to preach. Let's look into it and see for ourselves if what they say is true. Because, brothers, if it is true, then we need to be on our face before this God. And we need to repent of that which we have done. And we need to trust in Him to be our Savior and Lord, just as all these others of this multitude have done. That's what he should have gone on to say. But he didn't. Unfortunately, that didn't occur. But his influence, his influence in that moment kept the apostles alive, but it did not keep them from being beaten. Luke tells us that the Sanhedrin sent for the apostles and had them beating. Most, most scholarship believe that the apostles received the same flogging that Jesus received on the night that he was arrested. 39 strikes from a whip, the leather tongs of which were embedded with bone and stone in order to create and caused the maximum amount of damage. This whipping was designed to lacerate one's back, making them bleed profusely. It often, some writers would say, exposed internal organs of the individual. It was meant to be a deterrent, not only to further infringements by the apostles, but it was also meant to be a deterrent to that growing group of Christians there in Jerusalem because they saw what happened to these apostles they realized what could happen to them. This was unvarnished brutality. This was not a simple slap on the wrist. And then having brutalized them, they commanded them that they should no longer speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And then Luke tells us that they let them go. And then we come to verse 41. And I would just tell you verse 41 of Acts chapter 5 has been the verse that has stopped me in my tracks as long as I have been in the ministry and from the very first time that I ever read it. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. Just think about it. Rejoicing. There's not some cute little Greek explanation for that word. It means having joy. Something happened that elicited joy in their lives. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. That brings me to the final hook on your outline. Final hook is this. 
Rejoicing in adversity. Rejoicing in adversity. They considered it an honor to be dishonored. They considered it a tremendous grace upon their lives to be disgraced. You remember the night that Jesus was betrayed by Peter? Peter's down there telling people he doesn't know who Jesus is. He's cussing in the process. Jesus is up there getting 39 stripes across his back. Here in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, Peter is finally rejoicing because he is being identified with Christ. He's no longer denying knowing him. He is being identified with him because he's receiving the same treatment that Jesus received. And he's suffering shame for the name of Christ. I believe their joy was tied to recognizing that. Jesus had taught clearly in the final night before he was crucified that if they persecute me, they will persecute you. And he had also told them in the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of his ministry, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. In other words, these men who had been beaten and battered were able to rejoice in their adversity because they had been identified with Jesus and because they knew that what they experienced in this life was not the end. A better day was coming. I got to this part of the text and I remembered something that a candy I used to eat when I was a kid. How many of you remember now laters? I didn't even know until I got older that it was actually three words now and later. I thought they were now laters. If you ever eaten now laters, they're little square taffy candies wrapped in wax paper, and they're not very good. <laughs> Particularly when you first get them in your mouth, they they don't have a lot of flavor. They're hard. You have to really work at it and chew. You have to be careful not to pull out whatever fillings you've got in your teeth. They're not very good candies, but you just keep chewing. You keep chewing, and you keep chewing, and you know what happens is you keep chewing. It softens. You keep chewing. It softens some more. And as you keep chewing, you know what that candy does? The flavors start popping out of it then. It's the farther you get to chewing it, the better it gets. Not very good to begin with, but the best part of that candy comes at the end. Don't you know that's a great metaphor for the Christian life? Sometimes we want it all on the front side. We want God to come and just open up the doors and make everything smooth and easy for us. We want all of the beautiful things that come when you get the initial pow of the flavors in our lives. But sometimes, sometimes the Christian life is best described as being hard. But you, could, you keep chewing. You keep obeying. You keep trusting Jesus. You keep proclaiming his name. You keep chewing. It softens. Doesn't mean that it gets easy, but it softens. And the flavor, the flavor of living the Christian life begins to pop. 
You begin to know what it's like to experience joy. But you don't check it all out now because you realize that God didn't say that it was going to all happen for you in this life. Jesus said, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. He never promised us that we would live our best life in this life. He promised us a life to come. And so whatever we understand about living our best lives, we better understand that. And then the last thing, and I promise we'll close, they said, don't preach in the name of that name of Jesus anymore. And did you see what they said in verse 42? Luke tells us that they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus in the temple and from house to house. You want to know why? We must obey God rather than men. How would you, let me change that, how should you describe to others what it means for you as a believer to live your best life? Let me offer you what I think the apostles would say, and it's my sermon in a sentence this morning. Living your best life means aligning yourself with Jesus by trusting in him, living obediently to him, and testifying of him even when that brings you trouble. Let me say to you this morning unequivocally, you can never live your best life if you have not aligned yourself with Jesus. If you have not placed your complete confidence and trust in Him, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Him, you can never live your best life. You might have a lot of fun things that you can do and a lot of great places you can go, but you will never know the true joy that the Bible speaks about until you have aligned yourself with Christ. Let me also say this to you, believer, if that is the case for you, then you will never know what it means to live your best life if you're not living an obedient life. A life that is fully consecrated to the Lord. A life that says, Lord, here I am. You send me wherever you want me to go. You do with me whatever you want me to do. I'm not holding on to other things anymore. Yes, it may be hard for me to chew what it is that you've got in front of me, but I trust you that you'll make it easier and sweeter as the time goes on as I obey you. You will never understand what it means to live your best life if you are not aligned with Christ, and if you are not living obediently. And then finally, you will never understand what it truly means to live your best life until you are willing to openly declare the good news of Jesus Christ with those who are around you. Until you come into sometimes conflict with people who do not believe what you believe, people who do not hold to what you hold to, but you with a a sense of joy and reverence and trust You step forward in the power of the Holy Spirit and you speak the name of Christ to them. And you tell them the good news of Jesus, that he died for their sins, that he rose again on the third day, that he has ascended to the Father, and that he is there willing and openly, willing, ready to save them. Whatever else living our best life may be, apart from those three things, we're wasting our time. And my fear is that many of us go week after week 
month after month, year after year, pursuing what we think might be our best life when Christ is calling us to obedience and to faith and to proclamation. Living your best life means aligning yourself with Jesus by trusting in him, living obediently to him, testifying of him, even when that brings trouble. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, my prayers this morning is that this word, as we have been able to examine it today, would be used with your Holy Spirit to bring conviction into our lives. And I pray for that one that may be here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior. They've never trusted in you. They've never completely turned all things over to you and allowed you to save them miraculously from their sins. I pray that today they would recognize that living their best life necessitates that. And I pray, God, for the one that may be here that is living disobediently to you. They've gotten themselves involved in some things and in some life of sin, and they've just been unwilling to turn from it. That today they would recognize that living their best life can occur so long as they are continuing to hold on to that. But then I also pray for myself and for every other person in this room that names the name of Jesus, that we would recognize that our mouths cannot stay shut we must continue to proclaim from house to house and in the temple the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we live in a world where the pressure upon us continues to exert its forces. And there's a great temptation among us, Lord, at times to keep our mouths shut and to shrink away. But I pray that we would be found with, with spines of steel that we stand firm on the truth of the gospel and that we continue to proclaim that good news to a lost and dying world around us. This is my prayer. I pray it in Christ's holy name.